She got her fingers crossed. So at the end, you go and see my wife, Janet, all the kids. You're going to get something really nice for Easter, okay? I won't let it out of the bag. But this is a th the end of a three-part series, uh, three Easter questions. You can find it all if you want to watch them online on our website, the Facebook, YouTube, and all of that. Uh, but first question was, why on Palm Sunday, which was last Sunday, at least in our reckoning of the calendar, why on that day was Jesus, of all people, weeping on Palm Sunday? And then on Good Friday, the long sermon, always long for some reason on Good Friday, we talked about why was Jesus convicted and executed like as a real person why did that happen what did he do how did that whole system work and today i want to talk to you about what does jesus's resurrection settle what does it settle so usually on easter i will do some kind of a message defending the resurrection and we live in a very skeptical society, and usually I will do that. I am not going to do that today, all right? If you want to hear a defense of the resurrection, you can go in the archives on our website. Last year, I did a whole series called Zero to Easter, very detailed. If you want a defense of it, you will get a defense of it there. But I'm not going to defend it today. So for my skeptical audience, maybe in the room or online, let me ask you the question this way. What if the resurrection of Jesus really did happen for the skeptic? For the believer, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean? What does it imply? What does it settle? What questions does it put to rest? What is the significance of the resurrection? When I talk about the resurrection, I'm not talking about reincarnation. I'm not talking about resuscitation. I'm talking about resurrection. That means Jesus was fully dead, completely dead. Jesus was put in a tomb, and Jesus miraculously, historically, physically got out of that tomb. That's resurrection. So that's a very different understanding of those, those re-words. Again, it's not reincarnation. It's not resuscitation. Resuscitation, a person's, you know, kind of a near-death experience, and they come back a half an hour later or whatever. No, he was dead, dead, fully dead in the tomb, wrapped. His body was wrapped. It was, it was at least partially embalmed in, according to their customs. And yet three days later... He got out of that tomb supernaturally, miraculously, bodily in history. That's what I say when I'm saying resurrection, okay? So I'm assuming it happened. I'm not going to bother to defend it. I'm going to boldly proclaim it today. What, therefore, are the implications of this? This is the central message of the Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's not that he was a good teacher or a nice guy or that he was love or that he was this or that or that he was moral or the Sermon on the Mount. Those are all great things, 
But the central message is his bodily, historic resurrection from the dead. Without that, you have nothing. The whole thing falls apart without the resurrection of Jesus. So what, therefore, does it settle? If you think in your mind, Jesus really rose from the grave, what does that mean? Let me give you six things really, really quickly. It may as well be 6,000. Because if you think about it, everything changes. Life changes because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Everything changes. Number one, the debate about the existence of God. You want to debate that God exists, and we go through all of these arguments and all of this back and forth as to whether or not God exists, and on and on and on it goes. But folks, when you have Jesus risen from the dead, well then, the implication is that there's a God. That there is a God. You see this in 1 Peter in the Bible's New Testament, chapter 1, verse 21. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God. Because of him, in other words, God exists, who raised him from the dead. If he rose from the dead, well, how did he get raised from the dead? Now, the Bible will say that even Jesus had the authority to raise himself from the dead. It also says that God the Father raised him from the dead. It also says that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Here, Peter says, God raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. He's boldly saying, because of the resurrection, you have grounds, therefore, now to believe in the existence of God. Number two, the debate about miracles and whether or not miracles can happen. Well, when you're talking about a person who is dead, and I'm not talking about he swooned or he passed out, or he lost consciousness temporarily. He was completely dead, folks. We even have this, uh, this mention in John's gospel, the, the spear of the Roman soldier goes into Jesus' side. You remember this? And out of his side comes blood and water. So says the writer John. Only John says this, and he thinks it's quite astounding. Well, nowadays, we know what that is. When a person is crucified, a person would die typically of asphyxiation. They can't breathe anymore. They're holding themselves on this cross, and they can't breathe. But when you see blood and water like that, that's indicative of a cardiac arrest. Something violent happened to the heart. The serum accumulates around the heart. You pierce the chest. You will distinguish between what John calls blood and water. The medical community even will acknowledge when they look at this, this is proof, rather crude, but proof that the victim was dead on the cross. And yet three days later, he gets out of that tomb. It is, you can't explain it any other way. It's written very clearly in the Gospels. This is a miracle. 
Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that would imply that miracles and that the whole idea of the supernatural actually exists, doesn't it? This is certainly what they thought in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 10, you have Peter and John after Jesus' resurrection. They are put on trial in front of the same crowd that Jesus was put on trial in front of or some of the same characters and they start questioning Peter and John because they did a public miraculous sign in the temple courts. They heal a man who was disabled, clearly disabled. They do it in public and they ask, they interrogate these two. These are Sadducees, people who didn't believe in the supernatural, people who didn't believe in miracles, people who didn't believe in the resurrection. They're very upset they control the whole temple grounds and they say by what power or what name did you do this then peter were told filled with the holy spirit said to them rulers and elders of the people if we're being called to account today to for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But wasn't he dead? Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Implication, the resurrection implies the supernatural exists. It implies that God at times acts above the, the very laws of nature that he established. It implies that there is an unseen spiritual realm. Everything changes because of the resurrection. Number three, the debate about Jesus his claims, his teachings. Well, one would think if he rose from the dead, it would settle this question of whether or not what he says is accurate and whether or not what he says is true and whether or not what he says can be trusted. John chapter 2, verse 20, when Jesus goes into the temple and turns over the tables, the time of the Jewish Passover, he goes up to Jerusalem. This is just after Palm Sunday. In the temple courts, he finds people, they're selling uh, the sacrifices there, but they're doing it in a place where the Gentiles would worship. They're exchanging money there. They're probably ripping off the people who are out of towners with exorbitant exchange rates. Jesus gets angry. He makes a whip out of cords. He drives them all out of the temple courts. He drives the animals out. He scatters all of the coins all over the place. He upsets the apple cart. And to those who sold the, the, the doves in particular, he says, get them out of here. You turn my father's house into a market. So the place, it wasn't that they were selling. That wasn't their crime. It was where they were doing it. That was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to worship, not where they were supposed to buy sacrifices and exchange money. That's supposed to be done elsewhere. And his disciples remembered, it says, zeal for your house will consume me, a passage out of the Old Testament. And then they get upset at Jesus. What do they say? What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Who do you think you are coming into the temple and making this ruckus? And what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple. They're in the temple courts. And I will raise it 
again in three days. And they reply to him. They don't get what he's talking about. They reply and they say, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. Uh, it was enlarged by uh, uh, Herod the Great. And you are going to raise it in three days? And the author tells us the temple that he spoke of was his body after he was raised from the dead. Again, a reference to his resurrection. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said. And then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. So it hinged on his resurrection from the dead. That brought trust to the words of Jesus, an affirmation of the words of Jesus because he rose from the dead. John chapter 14, he tells the people before he's going to, to face the cross, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have what I have not told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, well, where is that? That sounds like heaven. That sounds like somewhere after. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the place to where I am going. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive claim to truth. You say, that's so arrogant. How can he make that claim? How can you Christians make that claim that your Jesus is the way, the truth? It's not arrogance, folks. It's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus authenticates his claims. If we go about stating those claims with arrogance, well, shame on us. Jesus didn't do it arrogantly. The apostles didn't do it arrogantly, and neither should the church today. But that doesn't negate the truth of the thing. If he rose from the dead, then this statement that he makes, wow, we should take stock of it and wonder if what he says is really true, offensive as it may be, even in our day today. The debate about the Bible. What's the Bible? What books are in the Bible? Should we trust the Bible? Is the Bible authentic? Is the Bible inspired? Is the Bible not inspired? All of these questions are settled by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Acts chapter 2. Again, uh, you have the, the apostles in trouble facing persecution as they're starting to spread the, the, the message of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, you're going to see the day of Pentecost when the church is birthed, when it's going to start to explode, and you've got a weird thing that happens there where the Spirit of God seems to come in a powerful way, and the people begin to speak in these languages that they don't know. It's quite bizarre, and Peter is going to explain what this means, and he's going to say what it, and explain the whole thing. You can read the whole thing in Acts chapter 2, but the section I want you to see from verse 22, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. 
was done in public. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Watch. But God raised him from the dead. There's the resurrection again. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he quotes from the Bible's Old Testament as if to justify the thing. He says, David said, that's King David, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will also rest in hope. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. That's written a thousand years before Jesus lived. You have made, me, you have made known to me the paths of life and you fill me with joy in your presence. And he says, listen, I can tell you confidently that David died and David was buried and his tomb is still here. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that one of his descendants would take his throne. And so he saw what was to come and he wrote it down in that psalm. It's Psalm 16. And he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. There it is again, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. That's why you hear and see these weird languages and you see these signs. This is the outpouring of the Spirit of God, and that Spirit of God has been sent by Jesus because he has been raised from the dead. This is an authentication. This is a proof that Jesus has been raised from the dead, so says David. And he continues to quote these passages from the Old Testament. What's he saying? He's saying the Bible is talking in advance about Jesus. This demonstrates a supernatural quality in Peter's mind to the Bible. Why does he have this in his head? Because of the resurrection. Why does he believe in the resurrection? Because he sees these things happening and these people speaking in these languages. This is supernatural. He says this, the only way that this can happen is if the resurrection happened. If the resurrection happened, that's why this is happening. And because the resurrection happened, the predictions about it are true. This is the authentication of the Bible. Jesus in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, has a curious conversation with a couple of guys on the road. And he asks them some questions. What are you guys talking about? What's in the news? This kind of thing. And they say, well, aren't you from out of, are you from out of town? Like, are you from Mars? We're, we're talking about Jesus. Don't you know he was crucified and he's dead? And, but we've got these reports from these women that say that they saw him and we're all confused. And so as Jesus is talking to them, he starts to explain to them from the Bible that the Bible is talking about him. And then he kind of reveals himself 
to them and then he vanishes and then he comes back and they see him and, he, and he, he, he eats with them. And then we're told in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the Old Testament. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This debate about the Bible is settled because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It has a supernatural quality. Number five, we're almost done. The debate about the afterlife. Is it real? Is it not real? Is there something going to happen to me after I die? Or is that it? Is it over? Well, not according to the scripture because of the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for we know. We read this at funerals, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that's your body, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Why does he write this with such confidence? Not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan and we're longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked, as if to say that it's like being naked here. When we're there, it's like we're being clothed. For while we are in this tent, which is our bodies, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, our Pastor Don Mann, our friend who many of you have known for years, that's where he is, clothed in the heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. What confidence, he writes with, why? Who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. He says the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in the believing person, in the person who follows Jesus, that indwelling presence of the Spirit is a testimony to what will happen in the future, in the afterlife. How did that happen to you? How did you in, in, in encounter, experience the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to you. Well, how could he do that if he's not alive? It all goes back to, again, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's a settled matter in the minds of the people who wrote the New Testament. They staked their lives on it. Some of them went to their graves violently because of it. They were convinced, persuaded beyond all conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. And finally, the debate about the second coming is settled because of Jesus' resurrection. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. I don't want you to be uninformed about this. And folks, it's a good sign when people are crying, yes? There's life when people, babies are crying. Pastor Don used to say that, oh, there's life in the room, folks. That's a good thing. It's okay, you can 
come in and out as you wish. The, the, the case seems to be settled. And he says, I do not want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Apparently, it's not over even when people die, and he doesn't want you to be unaware of this. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection. What does it imply? And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. There will be some sort of return. There will be some sort of reunion. Jesus will somehow return with those who have already died. This is clearly a supernatural future event he's referring to. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. He's coming? Well, apparently, according to this writer, yes, he's coming. How do we know he's coming? Because he rose from the dead. They will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven. It's clearly supernatural, folks. You say, that's bizarre, that's science fiction, that's UFOs. Folks, he stuck his, staked his claim on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's why he believed in this global future event of some sort of a return of Jesus. And he says it will happen, it will happen supernaturally, and there will be a resurrection of the bodies of the dead, and we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them to meet with them in the clouds, in the air. And so we will be with God forever with all of those people, reunited with all of those people. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Death is not the end. There's an afterlife and there's a reunion because Jesus is coming back, he says, going to return. You say it's 2,000 years later. When's it going to happen? I don't know, but we're 2,000 years closer than we were 2,000 years ago. For the writer here, the ancient writer, this is no joke to him, folks. He went to his grave believing this, faced persecution for believing this. Why? Because he was persuaded beyond all measure, beyond all even conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead and the implications are staggering. Even to death itself, even the grave is not the end because of the resurrection of Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? I'd invite the band to come back. I think you're going to play that song, uh, Nick, and you can just play that at your leisure as we close, but we're going to close the service. The kids, I hope that you're ready. I think my wife has all the stuff ready. Yes, is that true? Yes, okay, good. So she'll be somewhere in the front to give the kids a really nice surprise. But I want to pray with you this Easter Sunday before uh, we dismiss. Father, we thank you today. We're so grateful that we can come and that we can celebrate, that we can worship even in this public space, and we can proclaim that Jesus has risen. We can do so without shame. We can do so with boldness. We can do so with humility, but we can do so. 
I pray, God, that for every person in this room, every person who will watch electronically, that there would be a difference in their lives, a practical difference because of the resurrection of Jesus. We pray together to that end. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you. Have a wonderful Easter. Kids, come to the front. My wife has got a surprise for you. Enjoy the fellowship as we leave together, the song that they're going to sing. God bless you. Happy Easter, everyone.
the Pharisees, the authorities, well they asked him, won't you please explain? He said, we'll tear this temple down and in just three days I would raise it up again. Coming back one 